20-year-old university honor student in Southern California with a successful future mapped out in front of her. During the Christmas holidays with her family, she visits her sick boyfriend, but her drive home doesn't go as planned. How did this all-American girl end up under the freeway near a lonely, deserted exit ramp that led nowhere? This is the case of Kara Knott. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Episode 7 of Crime Cave. I'm Christy, and today's case takes us to Southern California in the mid-80s, a crime that absolutely shocked the community. When I first heard about this case, I remember being really impressed with the family, particularly Kara's dad, and how involved he was in really trying to change things for the better. So let's learn about Kara Knott. Kara Evelyn Knott was born February 11, 1966, and was raised in San Diego County. Her mother, Joyce, was a hospital nutritionist, and her father, Sam, was a stockbroker and former hospital administrator. Kara was one of four children, the youngest girl. She had two older sisters and one younger brother. Kara excelled at academics, but was also a track star and budding environmentalist. She helped animals, she worked at the zoo, and reportedly was just always active. She was described as the all-American girl, vivacious, a successful student with a great loving family. If you Google photos of Kara, she could be mistaken for a model in a shampoo ad. She was the kind of kid who, in the course of a week, might finish first at a track meet, then visit a neighborhood kid who wasn't feeling well, stop by the local senior citizen center, then attend a rally on behalf of an endangered species. Her boyfriend, Wayne Bautista, was by all standards also a stunner. People would say the two of them together could stop traffic. By December 1986, Kara was a junior at San Diego State University, where she was an honor student and studying to become a teacher. She was excited to get home to El Cajon, California for the holidays. Her older sister, Cindy, was a newlywed, and she and her husband, Bill, were temporarily living with Kara's parents. A second older sister, Cheryl, was also at home, and brother John, who they referred to as the baby, was spending his first holiday season home after heading off to college. Kara and Cheryl had commiserated over the fact that this may well be the last of the great Knott family Christmases, shindigs locally famous for their elaborate staging and panache. The day after Christmas, Kara made the 40-minute drive to Escondido to visit her boyfriend. However, Wayne had come down with the flu, and Kara found herself in the caretaker role. Her mom said Kara had called her a few times with nursing questions about the thermometer and cold medicine. She wanted to make sure she was doing everything right. Around 8.30 that evening, she called her dad to say she was about to head home. Kara always called. It was a lesson Sam had drummed into his daughter since her earliest days behind the wheel. In fact, he took great pains to indoctrinate his youngest daughter in the ground rules of a precarious world. After their phone call, Sam sat back in his chair and waited for his youngest daughter to walk through the door.
When Kara had failed to show up by 10 p.m., an alarm bell went off inside her dad. Sam abruptly rose from his chair and declared, I'm going to go find Kara. He would later describe it as a call to his soul, that he physically felt it. He had his daughter Cheryl alert police agencies, then organized a search party, utilizing the meticulous attention to detail that made him successful in his careers as both a hospital admin and investment counselor. Throughout the frigid night, the family searched, crisscrossing the two freeways that Kara always took on that trip. They checked each exit, peering through the fog, then expanded their search to adjacent parks and mini-malls. But there was nothing. Now, this was before cell phones, so Sam had made the trip home briefly to make more calls to the police. He was stunned by the dispatcher's lack of interest. Some of the responses included, Girls will be girls, and If I had a dollar for every call I got about a missing person, I could retire. At sunrise the following morning, Kara's sister Cindy and her husband Bill made a second pass at a deserted exit around the midpoint of Kara's journey. They hadn't given it much notice the first time because the off-ramp led only to roads then under construction. But there, in a small dirt cul-de-sac, was her white Volkswagen bug under the I-15 freeway at Mercy Road, an exit that led nowhere. When police and Kara's dad arrived, one of the officers walked to the middle of the bridge that traversed a canyon. He glanced down, and at the base of the canyon lay Kara Knott. It was determined that she had been incapacitated with a terrible blow to her forehead, strangled with a rope, and tossed over the bridge into a 65-foot ravine. Her autopsy would later show several broken bones and ruptured organs. Exit 15 at Mercy Road was referred to as the tomb. It was dark, desolate, and eerie. Her car was found with the driver's side window halfway down, her keys in the ignition, and her purse on the seat. They also found a receipt for a recent purchase from the Chevron gas station on Vio Rancho Parkway, 15 miles from the crime scene. When investigators interviewed the staff at the Chevron station, they recalled that Kara filled up her car, paid, and left by herself. The brutality of this crime left the community in shock. The murder of the all-American girl was the lead story in Sunday's newscasts. Female motorists in the area were understandably panicked. In response, Channel 7 News ran a piece on traffic safety. They tapped a 13-year veteran of the California Highway Patrol, Craig Pyre, who typically served as the media rep on such issues. Now, once you get into a, a car with somebody, uh, you're at their mercy. The CHP says you never know who you may meet along the road. Anything could happen. Uh, being a female, you could be raped, robbed if you're a male, um, all the way to where you could be uh, killed. Uh, once you get in that other person's car, you're at their mercy. As investigators continued to work the crime scene, dozens of young women across San Diego began picking up their phones to report odd nighttime encounters with a CHP officer at Mercy Road. The women told of being pulled over for minor or non-existent violations directed to move beneath I-15 
and detained for up to 90 minutes. During these interludes, the officer would engage them in general chit-chat and then made veiled sexual advances toward them. He reportedly got very friendly with them and in some cases would stroke their hair and shoulders, making them incredibly uncomfortable. It turns out that many of these women resembled Kara. But that wasn't the only thing that their accounts had in common. The man who pulled them over was Craig Pyre, the officer in the TV segment on traffic safety. Several of the women had made complaints about him before the murder, but these were dismissed, apparently, because of Pyre's reputation within the department. Fortunately, a new initiative between departments had been enacted to collaborate on crime fighting. The California Highway Patrol volunteered to secretly search Craig Pyre's squad car. What they found was a rope in his trunk that was consistent with the ligature marks on Kara's neck. A check of his duty log revealed a stark absence of activity during the period when Kara had been killed. Further examination would reveal a hasty falsification about that time, as well as changes he made to several traffic tickets that he had written sometime later. The Chevron gas station attendant who remembered seeing Kara also remembered seeing a CHP patrol car making a U-turn on the road just after Kara had driven away. The mysterious bruise that was left on Kara's forehead was determined to be caused by a large flashlight that matched the one Pyre carried with him on duty. But the most significant piece of evidence was a distinctive and unusual gold rayon fiber found on Kara's dress that matched a shoulder patch that Pyre wore on his CHP uniform. It should also be noted that during Pyre's TV segment on safety, he had visible scratches on his face, which are believed to have been inflicted by Kara during a struggle. During the trial phase, this is the series of events that prosecutors alleged happened on December 27th, 1986. During Kara's trip home from her boyfriend's house, she stopped at the Chevron gas station to fill up her car. That's when Officer Craig Pyre happened to be driving along and noticed Kara. He then made the decision to make a U-turn and follow her out of the gas station. A short distance later, he pulled her over and directed her to the desolate area near the Mercy Road exit. He then proceeded to make sexual advances towards her. Investigators theorized that Kara recognized how inappropriate this behavior was and that she very likely threatened to report him. Pyre knew that if she did that, his whole secret existence would unravel. It's believed that the situation escalated to physicality and Kara scratched at his face. Pyre then bludgeoned her with his flashlight and strangled her to death with the rope from his trunk. He then threw her body over the edge of the abandoned bridge. Although the first trial ended in a hung jury, the second trial ended with a conviction on August 4, 1988. Craig Pyre was sentenced to 25 years to life. Craig Pyre has maintained his innocence. However, in 2004, Pyre was asked if he would provide a DNA sample to a San Diego County program which had been initiated to possibly exonerate wrongfully convicted prisoners, since such testing was not yet available at the time of his trial and conviction. He declined. When asked why at a parole hearing, 
Pyre refused to answer. For this reason, as well as his lack of remorse, all of his parole requests have been denied. Craig Pyre is serving his sentence at California Men's Colony in San Luis Obispo, California. Now, obviously, the negative impact this tragedy had on the level of trust the community had for the police department was profound. The other police officers and investigators involved in this case should absolutely be commended for what they were able to achieve and get this officer put behind bars where he belongs. Craig Pyre was that one bad apple in the bunch. As for Kara's father, Sam Knott, the name Craig Pyre does not pass his lips, ever. He matter-of-factly refers to him as the monster. He explained that it's part of his therapy. In 1994, San Diego-based journalist Steve Salerno wrote an in-depth article regarding Sam's relentless and unprecedented efforts toward victim advocacy causes and improving community safety. He became the foremost champion of victims' rights in California, working with lawmakers to help pass groundbreaking legislation. He devoted the rest of his life to helping police departments create better communication systems. One of Sam's victories had been to turn the bleak wasteland where Kara died into a flourishing nature preserve. So, he transformed the deserted exit ramp into the Kara Knot Memorial Garden. From acorns, Sam grew the native oak trees planted off Mercy Road, and his trees, dedicated to Kara, are growing throughout the county. At the time of that interview, Sam had been getting an 11-year head start composing a mental agenda for the year 2005, when Pyre would become eligible for parole. But on November 30, 2000, Sam passed away of a heart attack at age 63 only a few yards away from the site where Kara's body was discovered. He is survived by his three other children and his wife, Joyce, who still plants Sam's acorns in memory of Kara. He's buried alongside his daughter. Hey, everybody, it's Ray the Roadie. And this is Hollywood Mike with the Rock and Roll Chicago Podcast, coming to you from the Illinois Rock and Roll Museum on Route 66 in Joliet, Illinois, where once a week we are interviewing local musicians and singer-songwriters, and the podcast itself covers a wide range of topics, including, but not limited to, the history of rock and roll in Chicago, the current state of the scene, and the challenges and opportunities facing musicians today. So join us every Tuesday for a new exciting episode of the Rock and Roll Chicago podcast. Thanks for joining me. This episode of Crime Cave has been brought to you by Fortress Defense Consultants, providing security consulting for educational institutions, corporate facilities, and houses of worship, as well as pepper spray, situational awareness, and defensive firearms training for police and private citizens. Find Fortress on the web at FortressDefense.com. Contact Fortress directly at 708-522-8060 or email them at info at FortressDefense.com. Avoid being the subject of a future episode of Crime Cave. Train with Fortress today. Until next time.